Welcome to House of Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from this past Sunday. For more information about other messages or events at House of Hope, visit www.ihope.today. This morning, I want to... My message is more... It's going to be a little bit more academic. And you're like, oh, some of you are like, yes, I love that. Others are like, oh my gosh, this is, why did I pick this Sunday to come to church? So, well, it's a little bit for everybody, isn't it? So um, I've been, you know, reading quite a bit lately and um, I've come to, I was reading some stats and some history. Um, I love, I love history. I love, uh, I love reading about how things were done, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago, maybe thousands of years ago, or how they found things. Like, did you guys hear about the whole Mayan discovery? Did anybody into that? So the Mayans, they had this amazing um, culture. And we know that in, in, like in central Mexico and Central America and Guatemala and all those areas are the, the Mayan temples, you know, the big steeped pyramids and stuff. Well, they figured that, like archaeologists, because they see this, they figured that the, they, they had an okay society, right? They had an okay, it was, but it was actually Europe um, was much more advanced. England was much more advanced than the Mayans. And, and they're saying that up until now that even Rome and all these major cultures um, were just way more advanced than the Mayan culture. And then, then all of a sudden they discover literally they shot lasers from the sky and they mapped this whole area and this, I could be wrong, but there's, they have, I believe they've found 65,000 temples and ruins and, and they had whole networks of, of highways and the Mayans built overpasses and stuff so that when the floods came, they could actually still connect with one another. And there's this whole, if you look on it, Google it online and just say Mayan discovery. It's just amazing. They're they're now, it's going to take them literally a hundred years to figure out what all this means through, through archeology span and, and stuff. And they've, they've, they've superimposed the maps with the jungle because you have thousands of square kilometers of jungle and you wouldn't see that there was a city there, right? So there's just this, it's just fascinating to me. I was reading this. I was like, wow. And they're saying that the Mayan culture now actually far surpassed European culture as far as technology and and stuff. And they didn't use the wheel. They didn't use, like, it's just, to me, it's just like, wow. But it just shows you that discovery and revelation is still coming, right? If If we still believed if we still believed that, what, what did we believe that was really foolish a hundred years ago? Well, yeah, the, the, but you know, there is, there is good, don't get me into the flat earth stuff. That's, I mean, there's, there's, there's compelling, compelling proof that the earth could be flat. Oh, there's, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Dang, if you're watching this, we do not believe, I do not believe that the earth is flat. No, but a hundred years ago, like when, when medicines and stuff were starting to be developed and, and doctors were refusing to, to use medication because they were like, no, that's just, that's just witchcraft. You know, and yet here a hundred years later, we're, you know, we're better off. We have our health care. You know, again, you, you can debate me all you want, but there's, 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 there has been change. There's been growth. There's evidences. And I'm seeing that in the Christian realm, in the Christian culture... A lot of times, what we have believed years ago isn't necessarily right. And, and what we believe, what we've been taught sometimes, isn't necessarily right because another level of the onion is peeled off and then all of a sudden we start to realize, wow, how did we get that so wrong? Like, for example, slavery in the 1800s in the United States major Christian leaders were slave owners, and they're saying, well, it's in the Bible, we're all good. And yet, it wasn't, right? So now, and now you'd say, well, no, that's crazy. I can't, like, we don't have slaves today because that's a cultural, it was a cultural happening in the time. And so the civil rights movement rises up in the United States, and all of a sudden, people of color are just as equal as, as, as North American white people, Right? But that struggle is still on today. 
Not, and that, I'm getting off my topic, but what I'm saying is that we have a tendency to not grow in our understanding of what is actually going on. Because we choose to go, well, my mom taught me this, my grandmother taught her that, my great-grandmother taught her that, so it must be right. I'm taking a cooking course. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm enrolled in a, several cooking courses right now. And um, how many here know how to scramble eggs? Okay, just one. Two, three. Oh, okay, now the hands go up. It just took that breaker anointing that was on Margot to put her hand up, and then everybody's like, well, okay, if she knows how to do it, I can do it too. I thought I knew how to scramble eggs. I've been scrambling eggs for probably 40 years. And then I realized that I didn't know how to scramble eggs. So because it was taught to me different. And I'm not going to get into the details on how to scramble an egg, but the comments in my course, they were like, I thought I knew how to scramble an egg, but now I don't. But now I do. My grandmother taught me, and I've been doing these scrambled eggs for 40 years. This is amazing. Why, why, isn't, why don't we all do this? And, and he's teaching the chemical reactions of salt on the eggs and why, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm not going to bore you. To me, I'm like, this is great. But, but I'm going, wow. I'm learning. And so I think... God has put into us, uh, yes, after. Rubbery and it turns gray. Anyway, so excuse me for a moment. I'm just going <laughs> to. Did you know salt and vinegar are flavor enhancers, but pepper is a flavor changer? Okay, so this hasn't, no. <laughs> Ah, yes. So, what's that? No, but you do to poached eggs. Oh, anyway. So, (laughs) we're going to do a master class at House of Hope. (laughs) So, what was I saying before she interrupted me? Um, Yes. You put the vinegar in the water before it boils. Yeah. Yeah. See, the lights are going on. And it's better to use, like, really good vinegar, not just the crappy white vinegar. Yeah, yeah. It's like, anyway. Can we focus now? Because now you got me on a totally different track. (laughs) So I forget now where I was going at the first part, but um, I'm going to connect back up onto this train link. My point was, is um, as Christians, as, as a culture, we often just rely on what has been taught to us for so long that we fail to really see what God is doing. Um, my culture, my generation, I grew up in the 80s, we had, starting, um, starting off, there was a, a massive increase in the, nat- in the supernatural. Not saying that it was absent in my parents' generation, because there's always those who are hungry that want to see more of God. And if you look in the history of the 20th century, there was major moves of God where the supernatural was real, active, like there was the healing revivals of the 40s, 50s, there's the, you know, there's Catherine Kuhlman and all those major people. But as a general population, my parents' generation didn't see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit like my generation did. And so consequently, um, my parents' generation had an absolute um, um, handle on the Word, on the Bible. There's, there's this love for the Bible, there's this love for the Word that my generation started to decrease in because we saw what God was doing and we saw if we can see the supernatural, if we can see what's going on, then we believe it. It's true because it was, it was experiential. And then I, growing up in my 20s, I had constantly, I had my leaders and my people that I would, would speak into my life saying, Jeff, you've got to get into the Word. You've got to know the Bible. You've got to read it. And I'm going, yeah, you're right. And I did. Okay. Now we have the third generation. This is the millennial generation now. And I read something the other day that scared me. 
and it shouldn't scare me, but concern me be a better word. Concern me to the point that says the millennial generation in Christian society, they don't know that they're the least literate generation of the Bible for the last, I don't know how many generations, but quite a few. Because they're just not reading it. They're relying on their experience in the Holy Spirit to carry them through. And so their experience is setting the precedent of, you know, of, of what God is doing. That, that can be good, but, but when confronted with bad theology, they don't know how to fix it because they don't know the Bible. And as I've talked to, um, you know, because we've, sorry, I'm going to back up. With, my, with Deanna and I, with our experience in pastoring the, the millennial generation the youth past, as youth pastors, you know, we could, we could feed into that and help that. But we also saw that there was, even in our own kids' life, that there's, there's, there's just this sense that, okay, we don't know the Bible. So a Christian today, if you know your Bible, you're becoming less and less, um, oh, what's the word? What's that? Yeah, no, it's that you're, 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 you're becoming more rare. A Christian who knows their Bible is becoming rare. So that's a long preamble. So today, what I'd like to do, I've, I, I, w- I want to lay out how, it's like Bible 101, right? So that's where the academics come in, and I have a little bit of time left. I want to look at what the Bible is, how it's laid out, because I've heard people say, well, I've read the Bible, I've tried to read the Bible, and I get confused. Because I start in Genesis, and I make it to the end of Exodus, and then I hit Deuteronomy, and it's like, blah, 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 blah. And then there's Job, and they're like, where's Job at? And then I read Psalms, and Psalms were supposed to be written by David, but then there's ones of Moses, and I thought, Moses, he lived so many years before. I I don't get it. And so the way the Bible is actually laid out today is very confusing to people who are just starting. That's why when I, when, I, when I meet people, I say start in Matthew because it gives you a better understanding of what's going on. Even better yet, start in the book of John. You know, you don't have to read it cover to cover. So I'm going to start with some history of the Bible. The Bible, how did we get the Bible? How did we get what we know is the Bible? And why is it that it's so popular today and people are reading it, but they're not reading it? I think every, every person, uh, I, you know, this is too much of a generalization, but I would say at least 75, 80% of the homes in Cranbrook have at least one Bible in somewhere in their house. Whether they have to dig it out or it's a New Testament, their kids were giving it to it at school, I would say, and it could even be higher. But how did we get the Bible? How did this come about? Well, a lot of you know that it is divided up into 66 books. And there are, you know, you have your Old Testament and you have your New Testament. And around 300, um, all the, the, the scribes and the theologians of the time gathered all the books that they had at the time. And they had this big meeting, and they said, okay, this, Bible, this book is going in. This book is going in. This book, this is heresy. This is gone. This book, mm, this could go in, but we're not sure, so we're going to keep it here. So they had three categories, keep, maybe, and her- heresy. All right. So then they decided, okay, it's called the canonization of the Bible. So they took all of the books that they wanted to keep, and they put it together. Now, at that point, around 300... The common person, the common believer, didn't have the Bible. They didn't have. They didn't. It was. They left it up to the priests at the time, and we only had one church then. So it was the church. It was the church, the Christian church, and it was up to the priests and up to the different levels of of leadership to know it. It was. It was in Latin. It was in Greek. It was in Hebrew. It was in Aramaic, and they would learn all of the languages and they would read it out of the original texts. And then they would translate it out to the people, and that's why people would know who Jesus was. They decided in 300 that, okay, well, we're going to do this. And so for the next several hundred years, they just had these texts, and it was the Bible. And um, then come along, um, and oh, my dates are leaving me. Um, Wycliffe, he translated the Bible into common English. 
And it was the first time that the Bible was, was in accessible to some of the higher learned men, and there were only men, unfortunately, because that was the culture then, that could actually read it in English. So that was about, I think that was 1400, around 1400. Is that true, Richard? Around? 13, yeah, 1350 or so. Yeah, and that came along with the printing press. See, that was the Gutenberg Bible, which Martin Luther then took and went into German. And that, with the, with the invention of the printing press, made the Bible way more accessible to the common man and woman. All right? So that was around the 1500s. So when the, when the Catholic Church um, got split with the Catholics and the Protestants, Martin Luther says, I'm going to translate this from, into German, and we have the Gutenberg Bible. Okay? So for the first 1,500 years, the Bible as we know it wasn't accessible to everybody. So then in, fast forward to another 200 years, you got the 1800s. Wh- who had Bibles? Individual churches. And that's where we got the concept of the big pulpit Bible. And so the big pulpit Bible was then chained, literally chained to the, to the, to the pulpit, because the pulpits back then were bigger and they were chained to it. So the pastor, of the, he was the only one that had access to it unless people wanted to come and read, but it was frowned upon. So then you fast forward again into the early part of the 20th century where printing is a much more accessible. There's different translations now, and people are getting a handle on it. So the Bible as itself has not actually been accessible to the way we have it today except for the last 60, 70 years. So if you think 60 or 70 years, let's, say even just, let's just expand that to 100 years. So in the last 100 years... It's been three generations of people who have daily access, readily available access to the Bible. So I think we're freaking out a little bit too much to say, well, do you read your Bible every day? Do you, do you, do you spend time in the Word every day? Do you? Because up until 100 years ago, no, you didn't. You learned, you went to church, you learned from the pastor, you learned. And, but now we have free access to it, so we do it ourselves. Am I saying that you don't have to do it every day? No, I'm not saying that. Is it, but I'm just saying so many teachers and so many people put so much pressure on that you have to, you have to, you have to. And it's like it's only been 100 years that we've had access to it. So what did 2,000 years, 1,900 years prior, what did, the, what did believers do? They relied on the Holy Spirit. They relied, their, the, the, the presence of God, they relied on the relationship and they would get glimpses and they would get bits and pieces from, from their priests and from their pastors and, and they would chew on that. And through that, they would develop a relationship. But then the way that the Bible was actually laid out has been very confusing. And that's where I said, like, you've got, you've got psalms that are, like, out of date. And, and we, we've lost the concept of how God's journey for us, because the Bible is really um, God's covenant journey through to his people. That's how the Bible, what the Bible is. Some people believe it's just God's love letter. I'm like, well, it's, I don't ever remember a love story that says you can't eat bacon, so I'm not really, you know, kind of... It's like, you know, don't eat bacon. I'm like, you're get thee behind me. So But if we were to if we were to look at how the Bible is laid out and how to understand it a little bit better and help us to understand to read it, if we can understand God's heart with it, I think this is gonna help us read it with a little bit more understanding, a little bit more ease. So really we've talked about I've talked about a lot in the past few years about Old Covenant and New Covenant. I just, so a little bit is going to be re- re- review and, and, and repeat, but I, I just really felt that this was important for us to get a handle on what does it mean, Old Covenant, New Covenant, what are the covenants, and what is this, what is the play? And I'm, I'm going to run out of time, so it might be a couple of weeks of, of this. But everything in the Old Testament is not Old Covenant, and everything in the New Testament is not New Covenant. So oftentimes we hear, well, New Covenant means New Testament, and Old Covenant means Old Covenant. Old, Co- Old Testament means Old Covenant, and that's not the case. The Bible is broken up into five major covenants. 
And everything that we have to understand what a covenant is and what the types of covenant there is and what God was doing at the time in order for us to say, okay, this is what was happening here. And we talk about the Bible, you know, in 300, I said the Bible was canonized. That means the story was put together. And so we have this great book and it contains the covenant of God. Well, Actually, this book contains five covenants, four in the Old Testament and starting of the New, and then one major New Covenant in the New Testament. And do you guys know when the New Covenant started? Hmm? Yeah, with Jesus dying, because a covenant needs to have blood spilled. You know, there's, there's, there's this thing that God has, has set out that in order for a covenant to be binding and legal, blood has to be actually spilt. That's why the interesting point is when, when a husband and wife get together, what happens in this covenant that they make? If they're young enough and if, you know, whatever, I'm not going to get into physiological stuff, but if there's blood, there's blood on the sheets, right? It's something that is just real, that there's a covenant between a husband and wife. It's, like, it's called a kinship covenant. It means that there's equal, you know, you know what you do, what, you, what I do, we're going to do it together. And that's why we, have, we call this thing a covenant of marriage. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole thing if, anyway, there's no, if there's no blood, blah, blah. I'm not, just, but that's the intent. That was the physiological stuff of, of that covenant. And so we have the four major covenants in the, Old, in the Old Testament. The first one being was the covenant of Noah. Second one was Abraham, then Moses, then David. And then finally, the new covenant in the new, you know, in the new covenant starting in, in the middle of John after Jesus died was the new covenant, and that's the covenant of Jesus. All right? So when we're talking about covenants, in the Old, te- in, not in the Old Testament, in, in antiquity, in past history, Covenants were common. They were, they were kings would come, you know, King Jeff would meet King Rock on the road and we're like, you are very powerful. Hey, I'm very powerful. Let's get together and make a way more powerful um, relationship. And so King Jeff and King Rock would come together and they would form a covenant. And they would say, they would grab an animal and they would cut the animal in half. Well, first of all, they would actually write out, we would write out, what the covenant was all about. What did the covenant look like? So we would chip it on stone, and because they didn't, you know, it was, it was like that, it was that far away. They would chip out their covenant on stone, and then they would, they would go, okay, now what's going to happen if either one of us breaks that covenant? Well, this is what's going to happen. And then they would go, okay, this is, if, if King Rock attacks King Jeff, then King Jeff has all the authority and the power to destroy King Rock because whatever, right? There was, there was the covenant and there was the consequences and they were written down. And then it was the practice of the time. This is, I'm talking about probably three, four, even 5,000 years ago. And they, they've proven this through archaeological. Thank you. Um, they, they've proven that this was a common practice in most societies. And so they would take the covenant and they would place it in a box called an ark. Most Christian thinks that the ark of the covenant was new and it was something that God simply did with children of Israel, but it, actually it was common practice of the time. And so they would take the, they would take the, the covenant put it in an ark, and then they would take, I would take my covenant that I made, it would, it would be made in duplicate. So Rock would have a, co- uh, a copy. I'd have a copy. He'd put it in his ark. I'd put it in my ark. And we would do a ceremony, and we would take an animal, usually a lamb or a cow or something, and they would cut it right in half. There'd be blood everywhere. And then we, as leaders, would walk through this bloody corpse of an animal and we would be covered in blood and we would be saying basically if any one of us break this covenant let what this happened be done to us so there was a, it was an intense binding legally binding thing uh, contract and so once that was all done the kings 
or the, and the leaders would take their ark containing the covenant and they would place it in the temple of the God that they, that they worshipped. And they were saying basically that if any one of us break that covenant, we are giving permission for that God, the opposing God, to come and destroy us. And so that was the common practice of the time. And so then what they would do is that they would have this covenant and then there would be minstrels and scribes and, and all the artsy, fartsy people of the time. And they would begin to compose stories of the great covenant between King Jeff and King Rock and the culture of, of, of what that was at the time. You know, Jeff, King Jeff's culture of this and King Rock's culture of this. And they would begin to do these songs and these sonnets and the histories. And those, those songs and those histories of what this covenant was became a canon. Okay, so we have in the Bible, we have these five covenants. And then we have stories surrounding each of these covenants, and they're called canons. So if you look at Noah, um, Noah had, was one of the first major covenants. And everything from Genesis, uh, I think it's Genesis, I forgot to write it down. I think it's Genesis 9 uh, to 15, I'm just guessing, is basically the canon of the Noahic covenant. Okay, And then you have Abraham. Abraham comes along. God says, I'm going to give you, I want to make a covenant with you. And so here you go. Here's our covenant. And then everything that was written from Genesis 9 to, I think it's right to the end of Genesis thereabouts, is the canon of, of, of the Abrahamic covenant. 15, thank you. So that's, that's the canon of that particular covenant. And so oftentimes we will read the Bible and then we will try to actually apply what was in a canon from another time because it was all surrounding the covenant of that time and try to pull it into our present reality. And it doesn't fit. And most often we actually try to pull the, uh, the covenant of the Mosaic covenant and, and pull the laws out of that and try to apply it in our current state. And, and it just it causes a big mess. Because what happens is, well, I'm just going to stop, period. Turn the page, new chapter. I want to I describe to you the three different types of covenant. Okay, the first one is called a grant covenant. A grant covenant was basically what God gave Noah, Abraham, and David. Okay, that was a grant covenant. And what a grant covenant is, it's a king. It's a King Jeff is going to go to King Rock. I'm a much powerful, much more powerful king. I, in fact, have so many alliances. My kingdom is, stretches the world. But Rock has got a small kingdom. Let's say, you know, I own North and South America except for Alberta. And that's, and, and that's King Rock. So I'll, say to, I'll go to King Rock and go, King Rock, King Jeff, how you doing? I'm a much powerful king. I think you're pretty amazing, though. So I want to grant you total access to my kingdom. I want to grant you, you have free reign to do business. You can do whatever you need to do within my kingdom because I trust you. And, and you know what? I'm a, I'm a really good king. I'm not going to require you to do anything. You, there's no requirements on you. Absolutely none. That's called a grant covenant. That's what one powerful king says to another king, you're good. In fact, it's like adoption. You still retain your identity. But you can do whatever you want. I'm good. Not going to break it. Abraham is a great example of this covenant. Abraham had this covenant with God. God comes down and says, hey, I want to I be your God. And I'm going to lead you. And everything is going to be good. And so that's why there was no, in this grant covenant with Abraham, there was nothing Abraham had to do to, to, to do anything. Like, he just was blessed. God just poured out his blessing on Abraham. He just did it. And if, you know, Abraham, you can look, how, the life of Abraham, how many times did he lie? Did he cheat? Did he, did he kill? No, he didn't kill. 
But um, yeah. And God's like, oh, that's all right. That's good. I love you. Like there were still consequences, but God didn't smite him because it was a grant covenant. Same with, with Noah. I'm going to, you know, I'll never destroy the world again. I'm going to save you. I don't have to, but I'm going to because I love you, right? So Noah, Abraham, David was another man who was in the middle of the Mosaic covenant and God offered him a grant covenant that you could actually get into things and do things that you weren't allowed to do because David was known as what? A man after, yeah. And Abraham was what? A friend, a friend of God, right? So there's this relationship and that's the key to these covenants is that God simply wanted relationship with his people and it was a heart-to-heart connection. And so then you get along with Moses, and in Exodus, um, around Exodus 19, God offers the Moses and Israelites, he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people, a nation of priests. He says, and I will take you into the land, and I'm going to drive out the bad people of that land, with bees or hornets. And they're like, it was never God's intention for Israel to be warriors. He wanted them to be priests who ministered to him every, the entire nation. So then just after Exodus 19, the nation of Israel rejects the grant covenant and then it opens up to the next type of covenant and that was a called a kinship government. Gov- <laughs> kinship covenant. So you have your grant covenant, which is an all-access backstage pass to everything. Then you have your kinship covenant, which was then two quasi-equal nations coming together like a marriage and saying, I will do this, I will do this. You agree to this, I agree to that. Let's come together. But what happens if you break that covenant? Well, there will be literal hell to pay if you break it. And that's what happened with Israel. So for 40 years... After Israel rejected the covenant, uh, the grant covenant, they entered into a kinship covenant, and that's where we got the Ten Commandments. So that was the canon. That was the covenant. Sorry, the Ten Commandments was the canon, was the covenant of the Mosaic covenant. Okay? That was the written word. So you got your ten, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And it's interesting that even in the Ten Commandments of the time, it was an upgrade to all the other covenants that were known in the known world at the time. Has anybody ever heard of the term, or the, of the um, it's called a group of laws called Hammurabi's Laws. Okay, Some of you, I figured you guys would. <laughs> Hammurabi was a, um, was a, what was he? Lost. King. Who developed... Laws was, I think he was the first king to develop a set group of laws that would be consequences to if you break these laws, this is going to happen. Okay? So most of, I think there's 252 laws that he came up with, and most of them required some sort of mutilation if you, you know, if you did it. So for example, if you steal, that's fine. You can live, but you get to lose your hand. Right. If you do this, some part of your body, you know, if you're an adulterer, you can just go from there. Okay. So that was his law. So then God comes along and gives laws to Moses, saying, "Okay, you don't want a grant covenant, you don't want the freedom, that's okay. Let's do a kinship." And so Moses trucks up the mountain, and separation between God and His people start. The Levites become the priests, and they have the Ten Commandments. It gets put into the box, which is the ark. And the people enter into a 40-year journey because they rejected God. And for the next 40 years, they did everything in their power to break that covenant because that covenant simply just didn't work. Right? So you have the Ten Commandments. So Moses is starting to run down now. He's, God has told him that... Um, <clears throat> you can't enter the promised land. And um, so Joshua now is going to become the leader. And so when there is a change in command, when there's a change in leadership, that is the one time where there can be a change to the covenant. And so the change was, instead of 
10, oh, sorry, the change was a downgrading from a kinship covenant, uh, kinship covenant to what we call a vassal covenant. A vassal covenant is the worst covenant imaginable. It's the, I'm powerful, you're not, I get to step all over you, you get nothing, you give me tribute. So it's King Rock, you're scum, I demand 5,000 gold bars every month for the rest of your kingdom's life. And if you don't, I will kill you. And I will just take over the land, and it would be like as if you never lived. That was the downgrade to what Joshua received. And that's where we get the book of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and all the laws. They added about 400 laws. I think it was 400 laws. Something like that. Can't find my notes. They went from 10 laws in a kinship to over 400 laws in a vassal, and that started the process of the Mosaic Covenant. Fast forward 1,300 years. I'm going to realize in history, the first 2,800 years of, of written Christian, not Christian, but Hebrew, like from Genesis, 2,800 years from, from Adam to Moses, there was no laws. There was, there was no, like, there was no, if you do this, you will be. If you don't do this, you will be dead. Right? There was none of that. Moses comes along. God gives him the laws. God gives him the, the, the things, the requirements. And it became a covenant of blessing and cursing. If you don't, you know, do this, you will die. Right? And so how many of us know today even we start to we tend to pull things out of that covenant and 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 try to hang them on people and say well some of them are obvious like don't kill right but other ones like other the minor laws like don't get a tattoo no bacon um you only can wear one type of clothing like you know, don't mix your, like, this is a polycotton blend. I would be killed, should be killed, if we're, if we're following that. I want to read something to you that's kind of funny. I think we have time. Are you guys bored, or is this kind of interesting? Okay. You guys not, remember who Dr. Laura Schlesinger? Yeah, I used to listen to her. She used to, it was awesome. So this is a letter. It says, Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing such, so much to educate people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from your show and and try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states it to be an abomination. End of debate. But I do need some advice from you. However, regarding some of the other elements of God's laws and how to follow them. Leviticus 25.44 states that I may possess slaves, both male and female provided they are from neighboring nations. And a friend of mine claims that, that this applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Can you, can you clarify? Please clarify. Why can't I own Canadians? I would like to, number two, I would like to sell my daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? Number three, I I know that I am allowed no contact with a woman while she is on her period or of menstrual and cleanliness, Leviticus 15, 19 to 24. But the problem is, how do I tell? I've tried asking, but most women take offense. (laughs) Number four, when I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord in Leviticus 1, 9. The problem is my neighbors, they claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? I also have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly states that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill, kill him myself, or should I ask the police to do it? And a friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination from Leviticus 11.10, it's a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Can you settle this? Are there degrees of abomination? 
And number seven was Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20 or is there some wiggle room here? Most of my male friends get their hair trimmed, including the hair around their temples, even though that this is expressly forbidden in Leviticus 19.27. How should I, how should they die? And I know from Leviticus 11, 8 to, or 6 through 8, that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean. But, I may, but may I still play football if I wear gloves? <laughs> and finally, my uncle has a farm. He, he violates Leviticus 19, 19 by planting two different types of crops in the same fields, as does his wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, cotton poly blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them, as Leviticus 24.10-16 through says? Couldn't we just burn them to death in a private family affair, like we do with people who sleep with their in-laws? Leviticus 20.14. I know you've studied these things extensively and thus enjoy considerable expertise in such matters, so I'm confident that you can help. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. Your devoted disciple and adoring fan, A.J.C. P.S. It would be a damn shame if we couldn't own a Canadian. So, you know, it doesn't make sense to tell someone um, that they, can, they, they cannot get a tattoo and then we go ahead and, and eat bacon. It's just there's so many inconsistencies. It's because we don't understand the covenants and, and, and what the canons were of those covenants and what the commands were of those covenants. You know, we can laugh about this, but these are the, like the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy are the two books of the Bible that causes more atheists because we don't have the means to say, well, that's not how you read it. You don't read these things literally as if they are for us now. We can't pull from an old covenant and, and expect the same results because we're in a new covenant. And see, the new covenant, the covenant of Jesus, he reduced everything from, like, by the time Jesus showed up, they went from 10 commandments to over 400 commandments, and then the Pharisees and the Sadducees added an additional two or 250 commandments. And that's why Jesus, when he came back, he's like, you guys have just, you've put my people in bondage. And so I'm going to reduce this new covenant that I tell you, three things. One thing, but three things. Love. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's the other one? in love and see that's and and so when when somebody comes to me and says look at that person he's got a tattoo god's word says don't have a tattoo and like literally it's usually when we're eating lunch and i'm looking at the bacon on their burger like i mean serious like i mean i like it's just i'm going we we can't do that we don't live in this in this covenant and so i I don't want to i'm just does that, does that kind of make some things clear? I'm going to wrap it up. So you got your three different covenants. So Jesus came back, and instead of making a covenant with man again, it was between God, his Father, and Jesus, and they have a grant covenant because God's heart for his people has always been a grant covenant. Always. It's been our choice to make it something less than it was. So there you go. No cheeseburger. Leviticus said a lot. Put salt after. Anyway. So in just in wrapping up, I want to just show you a little bit of some under, little bit of an understanding. Um, I'm going to make this legit. I'm just going to read Hebrews. Um, Hebrews 8 is an amazing picture of why we choose to live 
and the new covenant with Jesus. And I, and I can go into talking with the new covenant later, but in verse 13, and I'm pulling this, you have to read it because I don't want to just pull it out of context, but it sums up. It says, in that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And we're not talking about the Abrahamic covenant. We're not talking about the Noahic covenant. We're not talking about the covenant of David. We're talking about the law, the covenant of Moses. Jesus came, and when he died, he made it obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And a little bit earlier, he says, and I I forgot to highlight the verse, um, but basically the writer of, of of Hebrews says that if there was a new and better covenant, that means the old one was, was faulty. And Jesus came and he gave us a new covenant. Now, picture this. Picture five trains coming out of a... Oh, I just messed up my glasses. Picture five trains because there's five. And each of the train engines are covenant. All right? So picture train A here coming out of his little tunnel. One, two, three, four, five. And they all leave at the same time. So you got the Noadic covenant, and it goes along, and it gets fulfilled, and it reaches its destination. Beep, beep, it's done, right? And then Abraham comes along, and its train is going, and it's like, oh, hey, there's a whole bunch of things that have gone on that that covenant now has been fulfilled. And then, and then you have the, the Mosaic covenant. And it's going along, trucking along the tracks, causing a whole bunch of issues. And then David shows up on the scene with his train, and he catches up, and he's, they're going like this. And then David all of a sudden realizes that he can go farther with his covenant that God gave him because it superseded the Mosaic covenant because he, he figured out it was all about relationship. And that God, even though he had a covenant with Moses and the, and the children of Israel, David had something more. He had access to the throne. He was a friend of God. He was face to face. He was a man after God's heart. But then his covenant came to an end as the Mosaic continued on. And then the Mosaic, basically, Jesus shows up and the Mosaic is going along on its tracks. And then what Jesus did in his death was he blew up the train station for the Mosaic covenant. But he did it just prior to it arriving. And so, okay, I didn't describe that. So the train, the mosaic train, shows up at the train station. Back up, sorry. Train is backing up. Jesus shows up, says to the engineer of this, it's done. And they're like, no, it's not done. And Jesus says, no, it is done. And that's why the two of them tracked together for 40 years. It took for the Mosaic Covenant to end after Jesus died. Jesus died, rose again, and there was 40 years of track left as the people realized what Jesus did and how he entered the new covenant, and then it died. Jesus fulfilled the new covenant, and there was that time where, where I read that in, in, in A to where it says that, um, where it says the now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. He, the author of Hebrews was basically saying it's coming to an end, it's finishing. Now we need to get onto the train of Jesus and go forward. We have a tendency, I believe, in reading the Bible that we want to place all of the canons of the old covenants we want to bring them forward into today's realm and use that as as fodder for people to be in bondage when we've got to realize when we're reading the bible we're reading things that happened thousands of years ago that don't necessarily have a bearing on who we are today now does that disqualify the old testament no not at all but it gives us this journey remember we're all about process We love our process. So we have actually, we're gone. We're past the Ten Commandments because 
the three commandments that Jesus gave us superseded those Ten Commandments. The three commandments that Jesus gave us as, as the foundation of the New Covenant superseded the 600 and something other commandments, um, laws that were in his day. And so, and so Jesus actually took, became, like the world became his. That's why we are allowed to be part of this spirit of adoption. And there's so much, um, there's so much in, in just kind of in closing, there's, there's so much discussion today about Israel and, and you know, the, the nation of Israel. And I'm getting into dangerous waters here, I know. But, um, you know, Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses and thus ended the relationship with Israel to include the whole world. And yet so many of us tend to dig into Israel, this whole thing with Israel. And I'm not an anti-Semitic, don't, like I'm not at all. I'm just saying scripturally, the way the scriptures are laid out, Jesus is concerned about the entire world. It's not just Israel anymore. It's, it's, it's a different, it's, it, and that's understanding what the covenants are. Does that make sense? So, all right. Whew. I think that's good. <laughs> I'm just looking to see if I missed anything. There's, yeah, I missed lots of stuff, but I think you get the gist. And my heart was today for this was to get an understanding of how the Bible is laid out and how we can read it. And so that's why it's important to start reading in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, and seeing the Old, the old Covenant is, you know, the laws and the prophet were until John. Jesus shows up. He dies. There's a spilling of the blood. The New Covenant starts. Bottom line. So then everything that we learn and everything that we try to develop in our lives is based on that. Not pulling from Sunday school from 20 years ago. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not. It's just, it's... It's it's irrelevant. It's relevant, but it's irrelevant in the light of of the of the higher commands. Right? Okay. Get me started. Let's start. Let's stand. Father, I just pray that um, what was what I shared this morning would land in our hearts, would bear fruit, there would be understanding, revelation. Father, I pray that anything that was said that would be taken out of context or taken mistakenly taken, I just want to correct that right now. Ask you, Holy Spirit, just to clear the airwaves, and as I've spoken and as things have landed, there would be understanding, that we take your Bible and we take it as your word. We're just trying to, re-understand, to understand how you relate to us. And so, Father, we love you, and we say, speak to us, give us clarity, help us to transition from the old covenant into a new covenant reality, and we do it with power, and we do it with help from the Holy Spirit, and we do it with love. Amen? Thanks for listening to our Sermon of the Week. Our desire is that you will be changed by the love of the Father and the power of his presence. For more information about House of Hope, visit us at www.ihope.today.